0: Uh, thanks to all of you that are here. Thanks to th- those that are online watching. Um, it's, good to, it's good that all of you are here. We are actually in the third week of this series called No Strings Attached. And um, it's really talking about this concept of, of free grace. And you may have heard us talk about that here and there, but we wanted to dive into it. Uh, and so over the last couple weeks, we've been talking about how that relates to salvation As well as rewards and assurance. And so, if you've missed uh, either one of those messages, please go back online. It's so, so important um, to to this concept of free grace. But today is going to be big. Uh, We are talking specifically about grace. And grace is one of those distinctive features of Christianity that set it apart from every other uh, faith and religion in the world. There's no other system of faith or religion that uh, emphasizes divine grace, quite like the Bible and Christianity. And we, we love grace as believers, right? I mean, how can you not love grace? Uh, yes, Grace Bissell, we love you too. Um, <laughs> but, but grace is undeserved favor. Grace is you're getting something you don't deserve. How, how can you not love that? But for a lot of people, um, there's a bit of a problem. Some people have a a tough time grasping that because it seems too good to be true. There there, there seems to be strings attached. And so uh, some people reject grace altogether and they start following and they accept Christianity's biggest competitor. Now, Pretty much everybody wants to know who their biggest competition is, right? I mean, you, we see this in the business world. We see this in um, our leisure activities. We see this in the stories we tell one another. Um, businesses, gosh, they have stats and programs to figure out who their biggest competition is. Uh, and then, then you have uh, the stories we tell each other, like movies, movies. Uh, Rocky IV, the best Rocky movie of all. Uh, you can argue with me on that if you'd like, but you'd be wrong. Um, but his biggest competition is Ivan Drago, the Russian, right? And, or Luke Skywalker's biggest competition is, is Darth Vader. Or um, we look at sports. Now, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so I'm kind of a Steeler fan. Uh, and so the Steelers' biggest rival, their biggest competition is uh, the Baltimore Ravens. They are the worst, and we don't like them. Sorry to all of you Ravens fans. But think about Christianity. Who or what is Christianity's biggest rival, their biggest competition? Who or what takes away uh, the largest number of people from actually putting their faith in Jesus? And many of you, I think, would uh, cite a different religion or a different um, uh, faith one of those things. But the Bible, when it talks about this, it doesn't name another religion. It doesn't name another faith. It's, it's much more subtle than that. It's so subtle that, that millions of people can attend church. They can be reading their Bibles. And they can even think they're Christians. But in reality, they're not believers. They actually are following the way of Christianity's biggest competitor, not the way of Jesus. And I would hate for that to happen here, and so we're going to talk about it this morning. Um, but it's been going on since Jesus walked the earth. And here's where I want to start. It's John 1. It says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was walking the earth, he, he got into all these kind of heated arguments uh, with the religious leaders. The, the Bible calls them the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were the teachers of the law. And these uh, arguments could really be boiled down to this, that the religious leaders of the day, they focused on the law and the rules and all the right behaviors uh, to do, but they lost grace and truth. Right? They were so concerned about the letter of the law that they missed it. They missed out on the spirit of the law. And in one of those heated exchanges, this is what Jesus says. He says, What sorrow also awaits you experts in the law? for you crush people with unbearable religious demands. Like, yikes. Those are some pretty harsh accusations. But I don't think we understand what it was like to to live in the Old Testament. And under the Old Testament law, there was 613 laws laid out in the Old Testament. And on top of that, if that wasn't enough, those religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those teachers of the law, they added hundreds of uh, man-made laws on top of those to, to make sure you didn't actually uh, even get close to breaking one of the Old Testament laws. And some of them, they made sense. And some of them were just ridiculous. Like, right now, you know, we, we pray before meals, and that makes sense to us. We, we thank God for his provision, the, the food, and that sort of thing. But they had, they had inserted laws and invented or prayers and blessings to, to pray every time you went to the bathroom. Like, just weird stuff. And those were all the man-made laws. But Jesus, he came to fulfill the Old Testament law. And no, no human being had ever done that. And Jesus told the Jews in Matthew 5, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish, or some versions say I came to fulfill their purpose. And once Jesus fulfilled the law, he introduced a new way of living, a new way to live, not not by works, not by the law, but by grace through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, And this became the point that makes Christianity so unique um, in contrast to the other, every other religion of the world. This emphasis on grace through faith. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 6. He says, for sin shall not be your master. That's such good news. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so as a believer in Jesus, you are no longer under the law. You're under grace. Now, what exactly does that mean? Especially the whole under the law part, because I think we could get that a little bit confused. The Old Testament, it describes different types of laws that it laid out. And there were ceremonial laws, and that dealt with some of the strange sacrifices and skin diseases and and food restrictions and those sorts of things. Then there were civil laws, which we kind of understand, because these were um, laws to rule the nation and govern the nation. They had a nation to run. And so they needed laws in place. And then there were moral laws where God lays out uh, some of the ethical standards of behavior for his people to, to live by. But if we're not under the law, but under grace, why, why even have those? And that, that makes sense. That's a good question. Uh, and again, some of them are, are kind of obvious. Israel was a nation. They had to have laws to govern, uh, judicial laws. But what about the rest of them? What was the purpose of this law that that was laid out. And this is a a little bit more complex than just one blanket statement. It's not that simple. Uh, But the New Testament writers, they highlight several purposes of the law, primarily to contrast them uh, to grace and to keep us from going back into what it calls slavery to the law. In Galatians 5, we have this description. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And the yoke of slavery here in context is really talking about the law. Now, the Apostle Paul says the law is like a yoke. Now, again, I grew up in suburban Pittsburgh, and so you Texans that have been here many, many more years than I have will understand this way better than I do. But a yoke was put on cattle as a method of control right it, it and so just like that the the purpose of the law was to control us to to rein us in and so one purpose of the law was to make sure we weren't um, going too far out of bounds, to, to rein us in. And that's pretty easy to understand. If we, if we lived in a, a world without laws, there would be chaos, right? If, we, if there wasn't a law that said you need to drive on the right side of the road, or if there weren't stop signs and, and stop lights and speed limits, there would be chaos. And so we need some of these laws to keep us in check, to have some semblance of order and control. Now, the law has the power to keep us in check. Here's here's where I want to get because just because it can control you doesn't mean it changes you. Isn't that true? It doesn't change who you are. It just controls us. Now, the second illustration that we see in the Bible is found in James chapter one. Uh, the law is pictured as a mirror. It says do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself do what it says anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like but the man who looks intently into the perfect law gives freedom and continues to do this not forgetting what he has heard but doing it he will be blessed in what he does so the law acts like a mirror Right, You look in the mirror and you see what you look like. And if you don't like what you see, maybe, perhaps, you're going to do something about it. And so um, it shows you where, where you're dirty, maybe how your hair's messed up. In my case, how my bald spot's getting a little bit bigger, how gray my beard is whenever I grow it out a little bit. Like It shows us how messed up we are. But similarly to the yoke, it can't clean you up. It can't change you. And so it shows you what you're like, It shows you your true state, which is a strength of the law, but it can't do anything about it, which is a weakness of the law. Galatians 3.24 says it best. It says, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so the law shows us that we need a Savior. We need to be rescued. So Jesus came to fulfill this law, and to move us beyond it toward grace. okay, This is so foundational to the Christian, Christian faith. And it brings me back to my original point, and maybe you thought I forgot to tell you Christianity's biggest competitor, but I didn't. It's what we're talking about. It's, it's the law. It's works. This idea that if my good works outweigh my bad works, I'm going to be okay in the end. right? But grace and works of the law don't coexist. They don't, they don't mingle, kind of like oil and water, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And Paul says the, the Jesus way is the way of grace, and you've you've been rescued, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been delivered as a gift of grace. And so if you've put your faith in Him and believed in His promise, you 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 have God's favor, you have God's presence, you have God's forgiveness, you have God's power, you have God's Holy Spirit in your life, available to you as a free gift of God's grace. Now you would think everybody would be like, "Wow, that's awesome! Yay, grace! Grace is so great!" But there's that sticking point at the end of the passage that says, "Not by works, so that no one can boast." It takes humility. You see, Grace says, you have a problem, and I have a problem. We've been separated from a holy God, and our hearts turn away from him. So we need to be rescued. We need to be saved. And my performance isn't going to cut it. Worse than that, the consequences of sin is death. And death is really a separation, right? When we die, our physical bodies separate from our soul. And when we sin against God there's a separation that happens in our relationship to God. It leads to death. And so sin leads to death, that separation. And so if I'm judged by my performance, there's no hope in that. There's no hope in that. But the alternative is grace. Now, many people, when they hear the word grace, they they think about that kind of polite, uh, a gracious host, uh, a gracious comment, uh, something like that. Uh, but the grace of God is nothing like that. See, forgiveness costs somebody something. Isn't that true? When we forgive somebody, it, it costs something. And the ultimate place of forgiveness at the ultimate price was the cross. And the Bible uses a number of ways to try to describe the depth of what was happening on the cross. It, it uses the language of the marketplace that Jesus uh, paid a debt that I could never afford, that I could never pay. It uses language from worship in the temple where it says that Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice that I could never offer up. Or uh, the language of the courtroom justice that Jesus paid and suffered the punishment, the guilty verdict, that I could never have survived. In all of these, Jesus is taking our place. He's taking my place. And at the cross, we're invited into what many people over the years have called the great exchange, Right? I, I exchange my old guilt for his innocence. I exchange my old death for his never-ending life. I, I exchange my old enslavement for his freedom. I exchange my old despair for his hope. And when I come to faith at the cross, I exchange my old messed up, like, sinful heart. And he replaces it. He exchanges it with a new one. And he puts his Holy Spirit to live inside me. And this can happen for you. If we miss grace, we miss all of it, right? I miss the forgiveness of my sins if I miss grace. I miss peace with God. I miss having the power of the Holy Spirit inside me to help me change my life. I miss hope beyond death. I miss purpose in life. I miss all of it. And this is so important because you can know all of this. You can hear all of it, and it doesn't change anything. Because grace calls for a question, this great question of Jesus. Will you receive me as a free gift of grace? Not by works, but by faith, by simply believing in my promise. John 1, 12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And as, as a church, we absolutely believe in grace. But it's not, it's not just something to, to believe in. It's something to live out isn't it? In our church ministries, in our meetings, in our events, we want grace to be present. In our interactions with people, we want to show grace. So how do we do that? As a a church, we want to show grace just like Jesus showed grace. And we say it this way, and if you've been around for a while, you've probably heard us use this language. Uh, But if you're fairly new with us uh, here or online, um, this is what we want for you, every time you enter our doors or sign in and engage with us online, this is what we want you to experience. That hill country is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. Everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, anything's possible. First, everybody's welcome because Jesus, he walked around like he had this big billboard behind him that said, Everybody's welcome. But the problem was, even his disciples didn't understand that. They didn't get it until Jesus died and his Holy Spirit came, and it created a a transformation in that community. The church became a place that never existed before, a place that if you wanted to be a part of it, you could. Everybody's welcome. And Jesus, he welcomed everybody. He didn't shy away from uh, anybody prostitutes, lepers, sick people, uh, tax collectors, which strangely enough have their own category of sinner and um, hatred and disdain in the Bible. He didn't shy away from anybody. He, he went to their homes. He hung out with them. He ate meals with them. He, he actually made wine for them. And in Luke 7, he says, The Son of Man, Jesus, he, he came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so, because he was so inclusive with this out crowd, he gets labeled a drunk, like Jesus gets labeled a drunk. And so, why would he even hang out with these people? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, he loved everybody equally. And second, he recognized that those who were known as sinners, those prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors, they were actually closer to salvation than the righteous, the, 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 the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders. They were closer uh, to salvation because they weren't leaning on their own righteousness. They weren't leaning on their good works and good deeds like many of those Jewish leaders were. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And Jesus, he was never harsh with those sinners. He was only harsh with uh, people who were self-righteous and proud. And so first, everybody's welcome here. No matter what your background, no matter what your past was, no matter what your present is, we want everybody to be welcome here. Jesus showed grace, and we want to as well as a church. The second thing is nobody's perfect. No one's perfect. We know this, especially me. I'm up here. I get it, but I'm not perfect. And you can probably sit there and say, especially me, too, None of us are perfect. We all have issues, so judging one another um, and judging our sins and struggles over your own is just so hypocritical, but we fall into that. That's not what we're about. We all have our own backgrounds and we all have our own baggage that we're dealing with and wrestling with. We're even uh, created, we're even um, born and wired and shaped differently from birth. And so your temperament and your personality might mean that you naturally are, are good at some things and then at others you're not. And so if you're introverted like me, maybe you're really good at connecting with God through, through solitude. And that's a good thing. But that doesn't automatically make you more holy than somebody who struggles with that. Or if you're on the other side of the spectrum, you're extroverted. Maybe you're really good at at building community and doing life with others and and encouraging one another. And that's that's something you're really good at. But that doesn't mean you're spiritually superior to somebody who struggles with that and isn't as good at, at that. And since you don't know where someone else is in life and where they're coming from, God says, be careful how you judge others. Be careful how you judge others. And so what does this authentic Christian community really look like? Right? We, we, we don't look down on others. We, we love each other. We speak truth to one another. Yeah, we, we call sin, sin, and we, we want to help people move beyond that and turn away from that, but we're dealing with people. And so we ask forgiveness a lot, and we need to, because we don't want conflict to go on. We, we don't want to allow that to go unresolved. We don't want bitterness to go unresolved. And so we need to realize that nobody's perfect. And the third thing is anything's possible. I mean, you never know. When Jesus gets a hold of somebody and puts his Holy Spirit inside of them and he starts giving them spiritual gifts and starts changing their heart and changing their mind, I mean, people start doing things that they never thought they could do in their own human ability. Jesus put it this way in Luke 18. He says, what is impossible with man? Is possible with God. And so we see things like this shaky, kind of impulsive guy named Simon. He becomes Peter, the rock, and he goes from denying Jesus multiple times to preaching the gospel in the city square. And then we get this wealthy guy named Joseph, and he becomes so generous with his life and with his wealth that he becomes Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And then we see Saul, gosh, a, a Jewish zealot who hated Gentiles and killed Christians. And he becomes Paul, and his life is marked by his love for spreading the gospel and his love for Gentiles. And there's never been a community like this. Because with Jesus, anything is possible. And so what does that look like um, for us? Well, God, he only has imperfect people to work with. And so we ought to love, and we, we should accept uh, everybody who walks through our doors, regardless of their appearance, or their past, or their present. And so, like Jesus, we should welcome everybody and help them take their next steps in their spiritual journey and be realistic about their progress. Because, yes, anything is possible with God, but maturity in faith and change, that takes time. And so, we should be loving and patient with others. Now, let me wrap this up by giving you the secret to living in grace. And it's, it's simply this, to learn to enjoy God's unconditional love, his unconditional love. I think we need to grasp how deep God's love goes for us. In First John 3, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that's, that's what we are. As a child, your value is based on who you are. It's not based on what you've done, right? Now, for some of you, that might be a hard thing to accept. Maybe you've been trained and programmed from a a very young age to, to think of love as conditional. Like, I will only love you if. And if you felt that, or if you felt like you could never measure up, you need to understand how deep God loves you, just as you are, without changing a thing. You don't have to measure up. Because Jesus measures up for you. You don't have to to change things. Jesus has measured up for you. There's forgiveness offered to you. And then let's see what happens. Many people think "Eh, the reason I'm not consistent in my walk with Jesus is maybe I just don't love him enough. Maybe I don't love Jesus enough. I don't think that's the case. It's not that we don't love Jesus enough that we don't understand how much he loves us because the Bible says the, the, that love is a response. He says, we love because he first loved us. If you realize how deeply God loves you, it'll motivate you to please him and live for him because you can't help but love someone who loves you unconditionally with no strings attached. So enjoy God's love, enjoy God's grace and know that he wants the best for you. And that's never going to change. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you love us even though we don't deserve it. Even though we're separated from you by sin. You love us anyways. God, we pray for those here uh, that have never heard or that have never thought really about accepting your free gift of grace, that they would. And they, they would experience Uh, the life change that you offer. God, we um, just pray for our church that as we try to live this out, that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. You give us the strength and the wisdom and the discernment to do just that. God, we love you. Pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, everybody. So this week, remind yourselves how much God loves you. Remind yourselves that it is unconditional and experience the joy that comes from that. We'll see you next week.